everyone. Welcome to the first ASF Weekly Science Podcast of August. Before we get to the science, let's do an update on Cleo and Christian from my favorite show, 90 Day Fiance, shall we? Now, Cleo and Christian are an interesting couple. Cleo is an autistic transgender woman from the UK. I guess she previously lived in Italy. And Christian is a 30-year-old man from Minnesota. They've met online, and now they're ready to meet in person, with Christian traveling to the UK to meet Cleo in person. Now, when we last left the Lovebirds, they had just connected at the London airport, finally meeting each other in person. Christian knows that Cleo is both autistic and transgender, and he feels that he can handle it. Of course, both of them were nervous at their first meeting, and before meeting Christian, we also get to see Cleo bust up the fourth wall of production, talking to the cameramen and producers as they were like friends and regular people, which they are, of course, regular people. But on a reality show, cast members are not supposed to break that fourth wall. They're not supposed to talk to cameramen or producers on camera. They're just supposed to pretend like they're not there. Cleo didn't care. Cleo asked everyone about their zodiac signs and even gave them a semi-reading of their zodiac signs. Also, on that same episode, we heard Christian got cut off from alcohol service on the airplane over to the UK. More on that later. So we also get to see Cleo navigate the very loud and very busy streets of London. She has a common sensory issue or sensory issues and even wears a lanyard in case she has an anxiety attack so severe she passes out. This is how bad her sensory issues are. So on day two, Christian and Cleo decide to do a little sightseeing around London. Christian says, let's just walk around and play it by ear. Now, this is probably a normal impulse for Christian or anyone to have, but this immediately triggers Cleo. And I get this. She lives by a routine, even if that routine is day by day. At the beginning of the day, she wants to know, where they're going, what they're going to be doing, when they're going to arrive, when they're going to depart, and what they're going to see. Just wandering around with no particular schedule is not how she'd like to spend her day, and it's actually anxiety-provoking. But she's trying to be a good sport, and she plays along and doesn't say anything. I do think Christian has all the best intentions here, and Cleo decides she's just going to indulge her guest. After all, he's come all this way to see her, and she doesn't say anything. They later go to a bar, which is actually a ship, and they sit outside and have drinks. This bar looks like a lot of fun, so Cleo can be my tour guide in London anytime. And I have a list of things I want to see, and she can help with the schedule beforehand. Christian gets bored, and they go to another bar. He wants to go somewhere, quote, more lively to, quote, loosen her up a bit. Again, those are her, his words, not mine. The bar they go to has a lot of Christmas and twinkle lights. It has a lot of faces of the royal family, a lot of English flags, and a lot of decor. It also has a drink called the Sour Prince Charles Face. I don't know what's in this drink. I wish I did. And they're served in goblets or big cups. There's a bachelorette party. There's probably more than one. It's loud. It's crowded. And it's not the place, it's not the sort of place Cleo goes very often, but again, she's trying to be a good sport. Christian explains to Cleo and to the audience, actually, what happened on the plane to get him cut off from alcohol service. So apparently he was wandering around the airplane drunk and he runs into, quote, the only other awake person on the flight, unquote, 
who happened to be a 20-something-year-old girl traveling with a friend. So he's in the aisle, and he starts chatting her up, and then he decides to sit down next to them, and he tries to order all these drinks mid-flight. The flight attendant says, quote, I've heard about you, and I'm not serving you any more alcohol, unquote. So I think we can all figure out what happened. Someone complained to the flight attendant about him, and they cut him off. Cleo, this is called a red flag. But the real red flag is after Cleo's response to the story, which was, well, I wouldn't like it if you did that in front of me. He then turns around to a bachelorette party sitting next to them at this bar and starts talking to them and introducing himself and telling them he's from Minnesota and he likes to drink and party and then says, oh, and this is Cleo, my girlfriend, kind of as an afterthought. That's another red flag. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know what order all this happened in. This is 90 Day Fiance editing. So he could have told the airplane story first, or this introduction to this bachelorette party could have happened first. While this is all 90 Day Fiance nonsense, I do want to address whether or not Christian should have taken Cleo to this bar to begin with. He knows she has autism. She, he knows she has a lot of sensory issues. But I don't think either of them really know each other well enough to be able to gauge the appropriateness of this particular bar. Should he have been sensitive enough to ask? Eh, probably. Luckily, after Cleo feels like the seventh wheel in this exchange with the bachelorette party, she says that she's uncomfortable and she wants to go home. They go without too much argument from Christian. So that's good. I'm glad Cleo's setting some boundaries. Next day, they discuss that situation, with Christian attributing Cleo's response to being, quote, too shy, and he wants to break her out of her shell. Now, there's another layer to this, and it's the transgender part that's also adding to the complexity of this relationship. I could say that this is the most outrageous couple on 90 Day Fiance this season, and that Christian is acting so out of range for other people on the show, but that's a lie. He's probably not even the worst of the guys, and he's certainly not even in the bottom half. I'm really grateful for Cleo for providing a real-life example of situations that make some people with autism, not everyone, but some people, anxious. Christian probably isn't mature enough to move forward in a relationship with her, but he's probably also not a bad guy either. As they get to know each other, I hope that Cleo becomes more open with her limits and her needs. But more next week. Okay, on to science. On previous podcasts, I've stressed the importance of studying the brains of people with autism, and here's another podcast that will emphasize it. There are things that go on in the brains of people with autism that can only be studied by looking directly at the brains of people with autism, and that's not through an imaging machine. I'm talking about directly looking at cells. The only way this can happen is if people donate their brains to research, like they might donate their heart, liver, lung, or cornea, to someone who needs a transplant. And this is just like donating any other organs. It happens after you die. So really, it's a family member that makes the call and the decision, and one that scientists don't take lightly. They know that in the midst of the worst time in your life, you're making the decision that will help understand individuals with autism. I've talked on other podcasts about the scientific discoveries that have been made as a result of this research, and one thing that comes out over and over again is the way that genes in the brain are expressed. They have a pretty interesting pattern. It seems that genes that control for activity, shaping, and connection of brain cells, 
those, the activity of those genes goes down and those that code for things like immunity and glial markers and neuroinflammation in the brain, those go up, their activity goes up. And this is a pretty consistent pattern. The immune cells in the brain are different than in the rest of the body. And that's why scientists need brain tissue to understand what's going on. They want to know why. They want to know in what brain regions. Specifically, what about brain regions that have to do with things like social perception and speech and language and communication or other autism-specific behaviors? Scientists at the University of California, Davis, led by Cindy Schumann, and at University of Pennsylvania, led by Michael Gandahl, and UCLA, led by Pan Zhang, all lended their expertise in autism research, gene activity, and overall genetics to understand the immune response in the brain and people with autism and why genes that control for the immune response, neuroinflammation, and things like immune reactivity go up. So they did this specifically by looking at one area of the brain called the superior temporal gyrus in those with and without autism. They also age-matched. This means that they paired people of the same age together when they looked at the differences in those with autism and without autism. So somebody with autism, that brain was paired with somebody of the same age without autism. Now this superior temporal gyrus is an area of the brain involved in auditory processing, language, social features, including social cognition. Social cognition is a broad term used to describe perception and understanding of different cues that communicate emotional and interpersonal information. It can include things like interpreting a facial expression or even know how to use prosody, which is the changes in the pitch in your voice, like I'm doing now, to express emotion. Understandably, though, this area of the brain has been implicated and studied in autism, and there are many studies linking the structure and the function of this brain region in autism. But those studies get to the bigger picture. We want to know about the actual cells. They were actually able to extract those individual cells from the brain slices and look at the different cells involved and what they were doing in this area of the brain that controls for social cognition and is involved in language and communication. This cannot just help explain features of autism, but also direct specific intervention and support therapies to those that have these specific changes in their brain. So as I mentioned, they're not just looking at expression levels because they're pairing them, age match pairing them, one with autism, one without autism. They're looking at the change in expression. And they looked at both the pieces of tissue that have been mashed up, which looked at different types of cells. Those include neurons. Those include glial cells. Those include other types of cells that are in these kind of regions. When they looked at those little tiny bits of tissue, they found 194 genes that were differentially expressed, which means they were different in autism versus no autism. Most of them were upregulated and 51 were downregulated, meaning their expression patterns were less. Not surprisingly, for the most part, those involved in immune activation, the stress response and inflammation were upregulated or increased in expression. And those that were involved in brain activity were downregulated or decreased in expression. Now, I'm not saying this pattern is good per se, but it does replicate many other studies. So it is kind of good. It's an actual thing. It's not a freak finding. It's not a fluke. It's a real thing. 
It should also be noted that these investigators looked at this pattern and saw that it looked similarly to those in Alzheimer's disease in this same brain region. They mentioned that. I didn't draw the conclusion. I think that this means that this link should be studied, and I'll mention this again. But there are links between dementia and autism, and I don't know if we know the mechanism. Actually, I know we don't know the mechanism, or scientists don't. Now it's time to hone in on that. So what types of cells are producing these increases in immune activity? Is it immune cells like microglia or is it neurons? Remember, they took bits of tissue, which means it's a conglomeration of all of this. Well, they really wanted to look at neurons, which will tell you exactly what the brain cells that communicate information across regions are doing. So they were able to literally dissect out individual neurons on a slice, a slice of glass. They went in with a laser and sucked these brain neurons out. That's pretty cool in itself. So looking just at neurons, they found 83 differentially expressed genes. That was less than in the pieces, but that may not really tell you a whole lot. Because of the interesting link to Alzheimer's, they looked at, a, at different genes across time. So which upregulate across time and which downregulate. They found one gene called HCRA2 showed an increase in activity across ages up to about 60 years old in those with autism, where those without an autism diagnosis decreased across time. So this is probably an important gene to probe going forward when we look at the link between Alzheimer's and autism. And just as they did with whole tissue, they looked at differentially expressed genes, but they also grouped these different gene activity together based on module. And this includes their function, their activity, and how they co-express. Does one go up as much as another one goes up? They group those together. They found multiple modules. The number isn't important. Again, there was 18, but that doesn't really matter. One called M5 was upregulated. It was rich in immune response pathways like neuroinflammation. That was replicating what they found previously. Interestingly, they co-expressed with genes that turn on neurons, suggesting that the overall increase in immune activity was related to an overall excitability of the neuron. So the more excitable the neuron got, the more they showed inflammation and an immune and a hyperactive response. Another hub was focused or module was focused on insulin growth factor pathways in the brain. Now, insulin growth factor pathways have been targets of treatments for the core symptoms of autism. This is altered in neurons, so perhaps the problem with the treatments weren't so, weren't so much the target was how the treatment got to the target. Maybe the treatment needs to be more focused on neurons. Other networks or modules were involved in growth and differentiation, and that's how cells turn on and which ones turn on in what pattern. Remember, not every cell in the brain can be turned on at once. That's what causes seizures. And not everyone can be turned off at once. Otherwise, you could go into a coma and die. So there's a balance of what's called excitation and inhibition. Genes need to be turned on in a certain balance, turning some brain regions on and turning some of them off at the same time. The activity of genes that calm neurons down was decreased, and those that turn neurons on were increased. So this is an imbalance. It seems like the brain is always in a perpetual situation of being on. Whether this is related to the neuroinflammation response is possible, 
Remember, those genes that turn on neurons co-express with those neuroinflammation genes, but it's not 100% causal. Because it mimics the pattern seen in Alzheimer's, these genes need further scrutiny. So if your head is swimming with genes, upregulation, downregulation, excitability, and immune, I get it. So is mine. If you were to take away a few things, this is what they would be. First, the brains of people with autism tend to be turned on a lot, and it doesn't have the regulation to turn itself off. While it's not 100% clear this is causing neuroinflammation in brain regions responsible for social cognition, this dysregulation can't be helping anything. Number two, based on gene expression profiles and how they're expressed together, there are genes that should be the target of future studies because they may be one of those upstream genes that causes all sorts of brain changes if they're not properly expressed. Think of these genes as the start of the avalanche that causes the flood down the mountain. Three, the inflammatory profile of constant upregulation of immune genes is similar to what's seen in Alzheimer's disease in the same brain cell type and in the same region of the brain. Also, the genes seem to be differentially regulated, a lot of them but not all of them, and they've been previously identified as being autism-related genes, and this emphasizes the important role of these genes in brain development. They include both common and rare variation, and the findings support the role of dysfunction, the way brain cells connect and are expressed and connect to each other as a core cause of autism. And finally, this isn't just seen in brain tissue, it's seen in brain neurons. All of this is to say that scientists are getting closer to understanding the autistic brain. If you're interested in learning more about what is happening in the brain tissue of people with autism, what scientists are finding and how you can be more involved, go to www.autismbrainnot.org. Sign up. You're not signing up to donate, you're signing up to learn more. And also, I will post the PDF, it's open access, in the podcast summary for this article. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.